Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. In a new documentary called Upik, Little Village in the Arctic, filmmakers follow a father and his young daughter on a journey to build a traditional log cabin. The film is about connecting to traditional culture, but also brings to light a crisis in the Arctic to provide housing that withstands harsh weather conditions. We'll hear about the film and the need for housing solutions in northern Canada and Alaska, coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A Native woman who was reported missing in Canada has been found safe in the U.S. and is now facing charges in both countries. Police accused Dawn Walker of faking her own disappearance along with her seven-year-old son. Walker was reported missing more than two weeks ago in Saskatoon. Police say multi-agency searches were conducted and evidence led to a wide-reaching investigation tracing Walker and her son to the U.S., Walker was located last week in Oregon and taken into custody. She's now facing felony and misdemeanor charges in the U.S., including false use of identification of another person. Charges in Canada include abduction and public mischief. Walker sent a handwritten note to CBC News saying she left Saskatoon fearing for their safety and was felled by the justice system and child protection. She did not name the person she was fleeing, but had previously made domestic violence allegations against her ex, the son's father, the CBC reports. During a press conference this week streamed live by APTN National News, reporters asked Saskatoon police if domestic violence was involved and part of the investigation. Deputy Chief Randy Huseman. I can say two things in regards to that. Number one, uh, it may or may not play into this investigation. And number two, is any potential or any previous allegations made by Don Walker uh, were thoroughly investigated and uh, no charges resulted as a result of that, those investigations. Walker had her first court appearance this week in the U.S. Canadian officials are working on extradition. She could face additional charges in Canada as the criminal investigation continues. Her son was placed with a legal guardian and returned to Canada last week. Meanwhile, Walker's family and supporters are rallying for her return to Canada. They're raising funds for her legal defense. A fundraiser says she's a published author, playwright, community leader, and advocate for the rights of Indigenous women, families, and communities. Molina Healthcare of New Mexico is offering traditional healing counseling and support services to people impacted by the Gallup Parade incident last week when an SUV drove through the city's intertribal ceremonial night parade. Molina is offering the support services in partnership with a Navajo nonprofit dedicated to traditional teachings and ceremonies. The healthcare is being offered for free to both Molina members and non members. Gallup intertribal ceremonial events are continuing through the weekend, including a day parade on Saturday. City officials announced this week a new parade route to help ensure safety of participants and spectators. The parade downtown will be closed off with no access for parking. The annual ceremonial events celebrate Indigenous culture. The night parade is a fan favorite and was tainted by an alleged drunk driver who plowed through barricades, hitting several people. 
The Interior Department on Tuesday announced members of the Advisory Committee on Reconciliation and Place Names. The group will help identify and recommend changes to derogatory terms used in places across the U.S. Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland is leading efforts to change derogatory names. The agency is engaging with tribes, state and local governments, and the public. The people named to the committee represent tribes, tribal organizations, Native Hawaiian organizations, and include expertise in civil rights, history, geography, and anthropology. Members of federal agencies are also part of the committee. The 17-member committee is expected to meet in the coming months and will then meet two to four times a year. Meetings will be open to the public. A separate task force was created by Holland and is focusing on changing a derogatory word used against Native women, which is included in hundreds of places within federal lands. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Support by the Colorado Plateau Foundation, supporting Native-led initiatives protecting lands, waters, and cultures by building networks, community, and organizational capacity. Proposals accepted through September 1st at coloradoplateaufoundation.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Inadequate government support and a lack of comprehensive infrastructure are two of the driving factors creating a housing crisis in parts of the Arctic. It's a place where solid, sustainable housing is absolutely necessary. During the pandemic, crowded living conditions added to the burden. In the new documentary, Ukbik, Little Village in the Arctic, a film crew follows an Inuit hunter as he builds a traditional structure off the grid in Canada's Northwest Territories. Those behind the film are exploring the possibility of improving housing security using traditional knowledge and materials. They also expose some of the unique challenges of Arctic living. In this hour, we'll talk about housing security in the Arctic with the filmmakers. We want to hear from you, too. Is housing security a pressing issue where you live? If you're in Alaska, have you ever been concerned about housing in your village? We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I had a chance to watch Ukbik, Little Village in the Arctic, over the weekend, and I'm really excited to have two people from the documentary on today's show. Tiffany Ayalik is speaking with us from near Jasper in Alberta, Canada, where she is a filmmaker and a musician. She's Inuit, and she co-directed the documentary. Tiffany, you've been a guest on Native American Calling before. Welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. Also joining us is Kyle Kasun Taylor. He's joining us from Inuvik in the Northwest Territories in Canada, and his story is featured in the documentary. He's Inuvialuit. Welcome to Native America Calling, Kyle. Hello. It's great to have you on the show, both of you. And uh, Tiffany, let's start with you. How did you get connected with Kyle and, and learn about his fascinating story? 
Well, we actually met several years ago working on uh, another TV show project um, that uh, myself and my producing partner, Caroline Cox, uh, were working on together called Wild Kitchen. And um, we, I was the host of that show and Caroline was the director and producer. And with this show, I got to travel all across the Northwest Territories in Canada and meet really cool people who uh, were Indigenous and non-Indigenous um, who were somehow really closely connected to their food. Um, and we, Caroline and I, um, you know, grew up uh, being on the land quite a lot. Caroline had a far- farming background growing up in Ontario, uh, and I had a, a hunting um, and foraging and guiding background um, before I got, started to get into filming TV. And so we came up with this um, with this concept for this show, Caroline did, and she asked me to be the host. And um, yeah, I just got to travel around all across the North, meet really cool people, um, see what they were doing, whether they were hunting or foraging or trapping or, you know, involved in some sort of hybrid permaculture um, in the North, which is, um, you know, a pretty amazing thing when you think about the quality of the soil that we have and the short growing seasons. Um, and so that's the that's a project that we were working on, and we decided to go and meet Kylik up in Inuvik uh, and uh, spend spend a few days with him. Um, he took us out hunting. Um, we you know got to see uh, sort of the stuff that he does up in Inuvik. We went out fishing and hunting, and we looked for moose and and uh, ducks. And um, so we just hit it off really well working together on that project, and we've been keeping in touch. I don't know, was that like seven or eight years ago <laughs> by now? Um, so we've been in touch and kind of keeping an eye on the things that Kylik has been doing. Um, and then, you know, over the pandemic, um, we learned about, you know, the hard hard times that Kylik and many, many other people have experienced, especially in the tourism industry and especially in, uh, you know, more remote northern communities. And um, so we just stayed in touch and we learned about, you know, him being at a crossroads with the pandemic of what to do um, to, to support his family. You know, do, does, does he stay um, in town after, you know, the pandemic basically forced a shutdown of his, his business, you know, stay in town and work a, work a, a, a desk job that he would hate <laughs> for uh, way too long um, hours of the week and uh, not have time to, to see his kids and visit his family or is it time to move off into the bush and, you know, live for five bucks a day and um, do things every day that are way more culturally re- relevant to him and mm-hmm. his family? And um, and then we were just like, okay, this is this sounds like a movie. Can we can we follow you on this journey? So that's how that's where the initial sort of um, spark for for this doc came. So you and Kylik go back a few years and Kylik, I really enjoyed watching your cordwood and sod house take fold. And when did you first realize you wanted this subsistence off the grid lifestyle? Uh, my whole life, I'd, I just, um, <clears throat> I always loved being out in the land. I had a dog team uh, when I was about eight years old and um you know, learned how to trap and hunted. And I just love that lifestyle. And I, I just always thought one day that's the way I want to live. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, it was, it, the pandemic kind of provided the catalyst for us to actually make that, that jump um, out of sort of out of necessity, but also out of the opportunity was there. So, yeah, my, my whole life and it, I just have had many things get in the way of that dream or, or just, you know, postpone it 
so yeah, I'm pretty, pretty happy to be living it now. And growing up, what was your experience like with housing? I mean, I grew up in Ontario, so it was, it was fine. You know, I, I grew up with, I would probably have to say a, a level of white privilege. <laughs> My family was relatively um, well off. We never had any problems with housing or anything like that. Um, it was moving north that opened my eyes and gave me a much wider perspective of um, issues facing Indigenous people. So it was it was quite a an eye-opening experience to move north and see um, firsthand housing insecurity, food insecurity, um, you know, the effects of colonization, all, all of that stuff. So it was, it was definitely moving back to Inuvik that sparked any of this kind of conversation. Well, some of the things I found most interesting in the film are, are just the various challenges that I think a lot of us that live here on the grid just take for granted, like uh, being able to to get water and, and the temperatures and things like that. And I know climate change is a big factor in housing security in the Arctic. And did that impact the construction process, climate change, and some of these other environmental issues? Yeah, we... We had kind of plans to build um, more of a traditional sod house, but we've gotten hit with really, really high water, like floods. Uh, about maybe three of the last six years, we've gotten hit with these big floods. And so it just wasn't possible to, to build the way I wanted to, just because um, you kind of have to build right on the ground. You can't raise the building up very easily to, to make it above the, the new flood line. So yeah, that definitely played uh, a part in it. Like this year, I built I built a cabin four about three and a half four feet higher than than the highest flood that I had gotten at that spot, and um, the water came up within you know three or four inches of, of the building. So that's a big drastic change. And so now I'm, I'm going to have to basically build everything at least that at least that high. Um, who knows what what the uh, you know, what, what our next year's floods and going forward will be like. So it's definitely something to think about, especially when you're building something, you know, it's pretty big property that we're trying to develop for a little bit of farming and some other cabins and stuff. So you, you're constantly in the back of your mind, am I putting infrastructure in that's just going to get washed away or, or wrecked with floods? So definitely, um, definitely at the back of your mind all the time. Well, I want to ask Tiffany now about the history of housing up north. And Tiffany, what is the need there and what solutions have been tried in the past? And uh, what type of government responses to the housing crisis uh, have occurred in recent years? Yeah, that's a that's a great and loaded and complicated question. And I know that our, our cousins in Alaska for sure feel a lot of the similar um, struggles that we do um, just east of them in northern Canada. Um, so I don't know if it's the same, um, you know, in, in Alaska, but housing, um, had a very like traumatic beginning for Inuit. So as many people know, Inuit were completely nomadic, traveling, uh, complete freedom to follow the herds, follow the food, um, enjoy their traditional hunting grounds that were, you know, several places throughout the year, depending on the season, um, and this notion of fixed structure of um, permanence was definitely not um, an authentic or like 
woven part of Inuit cultural tapestry. It's such a uh, imposed and colonial idea to take a group of people who depended on movement and a nomadic lifestyle for their housing and food security to then force them to relocate into settlements. And for a long time, Inuit have always been, I like to call them, we're the, uh, the pawns of Arctic sovereignty. So uh, through, you know, contact until very recently, um, Inuit have been forced, forcefully relocated into different settlements um, by the Canadian government, by the federal government to basically prove to Russia, the States, any other country that has a vested interest in, in, in soil and claiming of the Arctic to basically put Inuit into these, into these locations to say, well, Inuit are Canadian, they belong to us, and if they're this far north, then this still counts as Canada. And so that's really how forced housing for Inuit started in, in Canada, and it has just been sort of a, a crapshoot ever since because the, the, um, the social housing, the housing that we were forced to go into, um, a lot of elders called them little matchstick houses that would just be set up along the shore that were basically fall, four, four roofs, or sorry, four walls and a roof, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, weren't, weren't adequately built, weren't built with any understanding or appreciation for the climate um, that they would have to be living through, weren't built with, you know, vapor barriers and, and an understanding of, like, air quality, Tiffany, we're going to have to go ahead and take a break here, but we definitely want to learn more about some of these, uh, the history of of housing security up there in the Arctic. And we're speaking now with Tiffany Ayalik and Kylik Kassoon-Taylor about their new documentary. Newly acquired access to a collection of Pueblo pottery inspired a new museum exhibit that just opened in Santa Fe. It includes the perspectives and inspirations about the pots from Pueblo artists, tribal leaders, and others. We'll hear about Grounded in Clay, the spirit of Pueblo pottery, on the next Native America Calling. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D dot com. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Housing in the Arctic. Remote living and extreme weather provide unique challenges for some Alaska Native and Inuit communities. Do you know of solutions that show promise of improving housing security? Please tell us about them by calling 1-800-996-2848, 1-800-996-2848. We're speaking with Tiffany Ayalik and Kyler Kassoon-Taylor. They are sharing their new documentary, Ukpik, Little Village in the Arctic. And Tiffany, you were talking before break about traditionally Inuit people are nomadic people and the challenges with them moving into to permanent uh, 
stationary homes, not on the go, and some of those challenges. And now clicking ahead here, 2022, what are the living conditions like now for, for many Indigenous peoples there in the Arctic? Cost of living, conventional building, what's it like? Yeah, the cost of building and the cost of living in general is just exorbitantly high than, you know, people who live down south um, because you have to ship all of the groceries up there. All of the building materials have to be shipped from down south. Um, And so and a lot of the time, these um, building contractors go to the cheapest bidders who um, are, you know, concerned with building things as quickly as possible so they can get on to the next job when what really needs to be taken into consideration are things like moisture buildup. Um, you know, there's lots of, there's horrendous mold problems in, in the Arctic with, um, with public housing, um, inadequate uh, insulation for pipes that are constantly freezing and breaking. And as the land heaves due to climate change, the permafrost, you know, constantly moving around, it breaks pipes all the time. And, just this not understanding from Southern builders who are building in really extreme environments, the needs of what those houses have to be put through. And so um, those are just like a a, a smattering of some of the issues Mm -hmm. um, that, that Northern people face um, with housing um, and, you know, having, not having the ability to make easy renovations to your own place that you're living in is also a challenge so, um, you know, those those are huge barriers that Inuit um, in, the, in the North are facing. And this is why we thought it was so important to really profile the work that Kylik was doing about not only like helping to build structures, but also to build capacity for local Indigenous people to be able to learn how to be more self-sufficient in their housing, that they can come out and be paid by Kylik to work and help build things out at his camp but then be walking away from that experience completely armed with the knowledge and the skills needed so that they can go and build their own places on their, in their own land, you know, on their own um, how like in their own hunting grounds or at their own camps. And that this is just such a generous way that Kylik is giving back to the community to be able to like empower people to be more um, self-sufficient and not be caught in this wheel of needing to make a huge amount of money to live in the Arctic and live in conventional housing. Kai, like Tiffany mentioned earlier, uh, $5 a day, roughly, it can cost living a sustainable lifestyle like that off the grid. And and you also use that number in the film itself. And aside from, from the materials that you need and being able to harvest those materials, the wood planks you used and the sod and things like that, just the resources, the raw resources. But... Uh, you also, you're quoted in the, in the film, I found this a really poignant quote. You said, living out here is almost free, but you need huge practical knowledge. And to me, that seems like one of the biggest challenges to subsistence living is acquiring that knowledge, all those little ins and outs, the tricks of the trade to, to be able to build a house like that and live in it and survive and thrive. And is there any way to expedite that learning process? Because it seems like that's a pretty steep learning curve for somebody that was, you know, new to that kind of a lifestyle. I, I think it's immersion. It's, it's kind of the same for cultural revitalization or, or language. I mean, just, just basically kind of anything that you want to learn a skill. If you want to learn Thai boxing, move to Thailand and <laughs> join a gym, you're going to learn. <laughs> um, 
so that's kind of what I would say is just immersion, but also uh, to reconnect culture to resources. So <clears throat> as an Inuit person, I don't necessarily have to fish or hunt whales or build a sod. I don't have to do those things. I could, if I'm capable, I could get a job and make money and buy all the goods I need. So there's not like this this um, this uh, need culturally for me to have those skills anymore to survive. Where 100, 200 years ago, you, you had to have those skills or you just wouldn't possibly survive. And so by having a business like ours um, that is able to compensate our staff, you know, we're able to pay, you know, pretty competitive wages for people to come learn how to set fish nets, clean fish, learn how to um, work with wood, learn how to live from the land because we have a tourism business and our tourists are interested in that way of life and, and um, to participate in it. So we were able to kind of match um, our revenues with our business to cultural practices and then able to hire people and, and compensate them so that when they, at the end of the day, when they go home, they can go home with resources from the land. So they can go home with, you know, uh, fish and ducks and whatever else we're harvesting from the land. And they can also go home with a, a livable wage. And so I think connecting those things is a, uh, is a, is a good, um, good way to do it because it, as, as an Inuit person who didn't have my skill, the amount of work and effort and time and resources it, it takes to reclaim uh, my culture and, and learn all those things. The only, the only thing that's really made it possible for my life is that it's my job. I, I, it, it's my job and I, I make uh, money doing that. So I'm able to do that. And even with my daughter, she's, you know, compensated to be part of the tour and um, same with all of our indigenous staff. And so it, it's just immersion and then finding ways to reconnect uh, the cultural resources to how we actually live today. And if it costs, hundreds of dollars to live every day and you can learn a skill like setting your own fishnet, catching your own fish and, and that saves you a huge amount of money and, and you got paid to learn those skills. I think that's a, a pretty winning combination and I, I'm hoping that we can expand on it with a woodworking school which would help, which, which could help with housing security. We could be, we could be building a lot of homes ourselves here with local materials and local staff. So. I think that's kind of the key is what I want to do is just try to build something that just thrives all the time. It's just open. People are building, people are fishing, people are hunting, just living the way we used to live. Because really, I think living in the Arctic, to be really successful here, you, you need to be both. You need to find a way to make a bit of money, but also find a way to lower your cost of living. And the best way to do that is, you know, setting a fishnet. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, yeah, and that's just so fascinating because what you're doing here, you know, you have this film out and and that's a big part of it. But really, you're coming at this issue from from multiple angles, right? You're you're, you're promoting cultural and other components. You're also there's an economic development angle to this in terms of this business and teaching people these skills and, and, and making a profit from that. But also the sustainability aspect and, and living off the land. And um so I'm curious, I mean, what do you hope viewers take away more than anything else from watching this documentary? I, I hope it sheds some light on the current situation that Indigenous people face and maybe create a little bit more understanding for people that sort of have a, a you know, an uneducated view on how Indigenous people are and what they represent, because 
what they see in the media or what they see downtown Yellowknife, um, not realizing what pressures and, um, you know, things they've had to overcome. It's, I think, I hope that does that, but also shed some light on some hope and some new ways of thinking and, and to really, to really understand that to go forward, sometimes you just need to adopt some practices from our ancestors. I mean, they lived here with sticks and stones and had thriving communities. And so for us to have all of this technology and all these resources and for us not to be living, uh, you know, healthy and within our culture to me is, it's obviously just systematic racism. It's possible here. We, we've did it for thousands of years. And so I'm just hoping that maybe some people will have a better understanding of it's not the solution isn't necessarily make more money, you know, create more mines, drill for more oil. I think some of the solution is going back and lowering your cost of living and, and producing your own goods, building your own houses, uh, growing your own medicines, those types of things. And I also think that people are starting to understand a bit more of the importance as a human being to have that connection to your environment. Um, it, it makes a big difference on just your just your general quality of life and how you connect with people and the environment. Okay, like another comment that you make in the film, uh, you say something to the effect that like like people that that don't understand indigenous lifestyles in the Arctic, and and there's this attitude. Well, if these people can't conform, they need to do it now, or, or they're going to get left behind. And I, I think so many of us have, as Native people that live in rural or remote communities can relate to that, right? Like, why do you people have to haul water? Why do you live so far off the grid? We see that here in the Southwest with some of the families that live kind of out on the outskirts. And, and people are really critical of that. They don't understand, like, why would you do that? Why would you choose to live like that when life could be so much simpler if you lived in, an, in a more urban area? And and I'm curious, Kyle, like, I mean, how do you change attitudes like that that are just so critical of of an indigenous, sustainable, traditional lifestyle? Yeah, that's that's a tough one. I, I, I tend not to put too much resources into changing people's minds anymore because I feel like it's I have limited resources and limited energy. So instead of trying to convince people that don't necessarily understand it, I mean, we made a film. So they could watch that. It's a, it's a lot less effort than individually trying to talk with people. But I, I think as long as uh, Indigenous people are hearing the message and as long as Indigenous people are starting to take um, steps towards a, maybe a more traditional lifestyle or reclaiming culture or whatever it is, and, and you know, we still work hard to protect our, protect our rights to be able to do that. Like I, my nation fought really, really hard. and so that I would even have the opportunity. So I even have land claim, like I have rights to go out and even do this type of thing. Um, because I think as, uh, as we kind of move forward, there's always way more people that are negative to any kind of change. It's just a ridiculous amount. I'd say most people are very negative to it, but they don't tend to get in your way. They tend to just sit on the sidelines and, and talk. It's the people that don't understand that are the ones that are making policy and and, and have control of those resources. And I, I tend to try to spend a little more time uh, fighting on that front, you know, because they're the ones that are making decisions and stuff as opposed to just the naysayers. So I just put effort into portraying the message as loud and as clear and with the help of my colleagues and friends, try to just change the energy around it as opposed to putting so much effort into 
I don't know, man, people talk negative. It's, it's, it's uh-huh. everywhere. You know, it's just something I try very, I put, a, I put a genuine, genuinely amount of effort into just not even listening. <laughs> no, it's a really good attitude to have. And I, I think it's pragmatic and and makes a lot of sense. I appreciate you sharing that perspective. Folks, if you've got a question or a comment, we're talking about housing security in the Arctic, and we've got two filmmakers on our show, and they're sharing a little bit of background on the documentary they made, Ukbik, Little Village in the Arctic. Our number is 1-800-996-2848. Please get in on this discussion. It's a good one. Tiffany, I'd like to to talk a little bit more about the film and and what were some of the unique challenges that you and Kylik encountered with the filming and the production and the distribution as well. So filming in the Arctic is always, um, you know, full of extreme highs, extreme lows, everything in between, and um, not the least of which, in terms of challenges, is is just being in in the climate that. You know, when you're filming at minus 30, minus 40, you know, your batteries have, you know, 10 minutes of life in them. Um, you know, equipment can malfunction. Fingertips can get frostbite when you're trying to operate touch screens on delicate equipment. So there was for sure, um, you know, just like just like safety and logistical stuff when we're filming in um, the in the winter months. Um, and then, you know, when we're filming in you know August at peak mosquito season that, you know, you, you become a, a Northern blood donor when you're filming up, uh, when the mosquitoes are out. So that's always, a, that's always a challenge. Um, but with each challenge, each season also has some of the most spectacular beauty that you're able to capture. And, um, I, w- I was really proud of the fact that we had so many indigenous people in front of and behind the camera, including, you know, the two directors and, um, cinematographers and you know people who are working on our sound that it it's such a it's it's a very novel it's it's sad that it's a novel experience to know that Inuit and indigenous people are um, telling their own stories in, about the Arctic a lot of content gets made up north but a lot of them are done by you know white southern um, storytellers and film production companies and they star white people and you know they don't hire locals so there is lots of content about the Arctic, but I'm really proud of the fact that we are able to, you know, do our little intervention into the media landscape to be able to tell it from an, and, and specifically Inuit perspective, um, which I think in terms of just how we are countering some of these narratives about stories told about us, that we are able to be, um, you know, taking the reins and, and telling our own stories. And Tiffany, the response, and, and specifically from key stakeholders or policymakers. And I just want to reiterate what Kylik said about focusing on on the decision makers, the policymakers, as opposed to just the naysayers. But ha- what has been the response from folks up there who have the the ability and the authority to to make the housing situation better up there in the, the Arctic? What's their response to the film? Well, the film's only been out for a couple of days. <laughs> so, um, so that's definitely going to be our next focus is making sure that we get stakeholders, key people, um, you know, the right eyes on the film to not only just have it be a living, you know, archival piece of like, oh, yeah, this happened at one point And this is what this guy did up in Inuvik. But, you know, how can we be, um, you know, employing the film as a tool, as a resource um, to be getting more attention on 
issues that a lot of people don't know about or don't have an appreciation for like the barriers that Inuit face um, with our housing and with our food security. So that's going to be, now that the film is <laughs> thankfully, you know, done and dusted and it's up on the platforms and it's, it's um, out on CBC, you know, we're going to shift gears a little bit now to be thinking about what, what impact can this film have and how can we be putting um, the right people in the right seats to watch it, um, to be able to, to create some change in the North. We're talking with Tiffany Ayalik and Kailik Kasun taylor about the new documentary, Ukbik, Little Village in the Arctic. If you've got a question, if you've got a comment, if you're interested in what it takes to live off the grid, a sustainable lifestyle in the Arctic or other parts of Native America, what are you waiting for? Give us a call. We want to hear your perspectives. 1-800-996-2848. That's the number to call. Once again, 1-800-996-2848. Housing Security in Native America. We'll be right back after this break. Support by the Institute of American Indian Arts, the birthplace of contemporary Indigenous American art, and the educational home for esteemed and innovative artists, writers, filmmakers, performers, and leaders, making history since 1962. Accredited by the Higher Learning Commission, IAIA offers undergraduate degrees, graduate degrees, and certificates. Info on IAIA's 60th and the IAIA Museum of Contemporary Native Arts 50th anniversaries at iaia.edu. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Housing security is an issue in many parts of Native America. What does the housing crisis or housing shortage look like in your community? You're welcome to join our conversation. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Tiffany, the documentary Ukbik, Little Village in the Arctic, it was just released. Um, when did you and Kylik film it? So we, um, we started filming in uh, March of 2021, um, and we basically followed him for a full calendar year um, through all four seasons, um, filming the development at each stage, the sort of the, the successes and the challenges that come, came with each stage of development, the challenges from each season. Um, and we were able to see over, you know, basically an hour, um, this village come together and the infrastructure start to get built and, um, you know, things be built up in support around it. So we just finished um, last or this past March. And then in, in uh, early in June, we actually were able to make, um, I went back up to Inuvik and I recorded um, everybody who speaks in the film basically um, to create an, a fully Inuvialuktun version of the film. So the film is available in the original, and then also we made a version of the film in the local dialect of Inuvialuktun. And, you know, it was important for us to do this version as well as a language resource that we're, you know, gifting to the community, um, considering that Inuvialuktun is a, is a very, very endangered uh, Inuit language um, and trying to do what we can to create resources um, that are accessible and give people a chance to hear the language um, in a sort of in a modern context. 
Let's go to the phones. We have Doxy listening in Barrow, Alaska. Doxy, you're on the air. Hey, how are you guys doing? Thanks for having me today. Can you guys hear me? Loud and clear, Doxy. So we've got a serious housing shortage up here on the North Slope where you may have, you know, uh, 10 to 15 people living in a household. And one of the major, I do uh, internet and satellite TV, so I get to be in the front and center of all this, you know. Um, Even through COVID, it was crazy. So some of the issues I believe uh, create this problem is, you know, you've got you've got all these uh, entities taking up all the housing. It's kind of like the school districts, the hospitals, the construction companies. The you know they secure all these. Uh, they buy, they go and mass, mass buy all these properties. And, you know, some of them are empty mm. until construction season starts. And the Arctic, you know, we all know that construction mainly happens in the summer. You know, okay. it's too cold in the Arctic for the winter. And um, I really believe that we need to, our leadership is where it all starts. Well, Doxy, thanks for calling in. And, and you raise a really good point about the housing shortage there. Uh, you mentioned the North Slope, other parts of um, the Arctic as well. And, and these entities like schools or hospitals buying up homes uh, for employees and teachers and things like that. So let's ask Kylik, um, what's your response to that, Kylik, in terms of the way housing is distributed and the way there are these competing interests for what's a huge shortage for housing. And he mentions, you know, 10, 15 people living in a house. And even during COVID, I know that was an issue having so many people in a house like that in close proximity. So what's 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 one of the long-term solutions there, Kylik? I, I think it's just the control of resources. I mean, people always talk about how expensive it is in the Arctic to build stuff, but, you know, it is, it is expensive to build things and it is expensive to ship things all the way up. But the same style house in Vancouver or Toronto or Edmonton is going to be the same amount of money or even more, you know, just, just the, cause they have a housing market. We don't really have necessarily a market. We just, whatever it costs to build that house, whatever it costs to develop that land. So I, I hate when they keep on saying it's just, it's such, it's, a, it's such the extra, it's this crazy high cost. And I'm going, you, you have the resources to fix this problem. It's just a matter of, you know, releasing those resources. How much money did we spend? on this pandemic it was a, a drop in the the pool compared to what it would take to you know adequately house indigenous people uh especially in the north so i i do feel like in some places in the arctic anubic especially is a place where we're very rich in natural resources so we're in the tree line and we have sod and you know we have um barge access road access so we're, we're really lucky here to be able to i i believe a big chunk of the housing situation could be handled by local people, local materials, building their own thing. Um, but then you, you go up north to the North Slope in Alaska, and it's, I mean, it's so barren there. You know, it's such a difficult place. And so I wish there was just some more forward thinking on, 
like we uh, some of these communities have these great big oil and gas infrastructure that's just sitting there empty but they can't mm -hmm. be used because of policy and all of this stuff and so a lot of the solutions don't fit into the to the government policy and i think it's almost systematically designed that way to keep it to make it you know make the solutions hard so that it, they don't happen so i understand when infrastructure goes to you know the, the um your nurses and doctors and all like like we need that stuff to run our communities 100 percent. they need places to stay but it always seems like the people are thought of the last the last people you know we're always mm -hmm. getting the bottom of the barrel once once everybody else has been taken care of well the reality is, is that they're having a hard time even just taking care of that type of interest like just keeping the hospital open and everything the whole system just seems to be under a lot of stress and it's not working very well and we're obviously at the very bottom of getting any of that kind of help and services, which is infuriating. Let's go back to the phones now. We have Julia listening in Taos, New Mexico on KUNM. Julia, you're on Native America Calling. Thank you, and um, congratulations, filmmakers, and great interview host. Been really a good interview. I'm a radio host producer myself and a filmmaker, documentary, so I really applaud your efforts. I mean... I loved how you explained, um, you know, how difficult it was to film in the Arctic with cold and batteries, et cetera. But my questions were about distribution, and I know I understand that you just came out the move, the film, and that you're on I think Canadian Broadcasting Corporation or company. Um, but is there what are your plans on? Um, you know, North America and global. Do you have a website? Um, can people buy the DVD? And okay. I would recommend, if you can, to get it on, like, FN Nation. I also live in Denver, besides Taos, and that is a great station, and it goes all over the country. That would be, uh, you know, on the Bioneers. And then who are your sponsors? How did you raise the money? And... Those are my questions. So distribution, funding, and I'm excited to see your film. And <laughs> right. I, I've studied about I, I've studied about um, you know people living in the Arctic and the housing issues that you've had for so many okay. years, et cetera. Right. So Julia, thank you so much for calling in and appreciate all those compliments here on today's show. And let's go ahead and let Tiffany respond to that. Tiffany, questions about distribution. Where can people see the documentary? And also, uh, how'd you folks fund it? So yeah, right now it's um, available in Canada. Um, anyone can stream it on uh, CBC Gem. It's the um, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's um, online, you know, sort of Netflix, I guess. So you can be streaming it on their platform. It, it has been broadcast um, in in some regions in Canada as well on on like regular um, TV broadcast. And now that we're completed that portion of the film, um, we're now looking to, you know, switch it up a little bit. And we we think it's a great festival film as well. So we're we've submitted it to a bunch of festivals all across North America and internationally as well um, to see if we can get a little festival run in first. Um, that's that's kind of like what we what we like to do before it goes to a larger broadcast because a lot of festivals don't like it if it is if it has been um, already up for broadcast in a lot of um, markets. So right now we're focusing on our festival run, um, and once we've done our festival run, then we'll be 
um, contacting other international broadcasters to make sure that you know people in the states can can watch it um, if they did, if they missed it at a festival, um, and, and that's sort of our the trajectory of our plans, and that's what we usually do with our films with our company. Um, and yeah, we were this this film was a, a commissioned work by CBC, our national broadcaster up in Canada. So um, we were able to get some financing from CBC. We also applied to the Canadian Media Fund. Um, they were uh, able to support us, especially with our the Inuvialtuin language component, um, because we did a, a language, an indigenous language version of the film. Um, we also got support from the Rogers Documentary Fund, from the NWT Film Commission, um, and those were sort of the bulk of our of our funders. Um, but yeah, hopefully in the near future, after we've done a, a very successful, I'm hoping, um, festival run, that we'll be able to um, pitch it to an American broadcaster as well so that the folks in Alaska can see it and you know other indigenous groups in, in North America can also be inspired by its message. Sounds good, Tiffany. We've got another caller now, Rico, listening on KNBA in Anchorage, Alaska. Rico, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, Rico. Yeah, yeah, I was listening in, and I heard heard them talking about the new film they're doing, and it's really exciting to hear because I do filming with uh, Life Below Zero, one of the cast on National Geographic show, and uh, I feel their struggle filming in the cold. I, well, I don't really feel it. I see it a lot when the people are filming, and uh, also to hear the um, to hear about this new sh- new documentary they're doing with uh, all a lot of natives involved with telling the story and editing and everything. That's exciting for me to hear. Rico, you're a celebrity. Thanks for calling in. Appreciate that. And uh, Life Below Zero, we featured uh, that show here on Native America Calling just a couple of months ago. We did a show on Life for, uh, Below Zero. So really exciting to hear about all these developments. And yeah, um, Tiffany, there does seem to be some traction here with regard to some of this far northern uh, reality television. I know you've done another show called Wild Kitchen so uh, is this a trend? Are we going to see more content coming from uh, the far north? I sure hope so. And I, I really hope that it continues to be, um, if not led by northern indigenous people, that we can be providing um, opportunities for really meaningful collaboration and cross-cultural um, collaboration where we are finally now stepping away from you know, the tokenization of the Arctic and particularly Inuit in film to be able to really challenge some of those really harmful narratives that has been put on us by, you know, other Southern, um, you know, film projects over the decades. So it's really, really encouraging to see a lot more content. Um, I'm seeing a lot more mandates from film production companies of like hiring local Indigenous people having meaningful collaboration, not just as an afterthought, but, you know, from the writer's room or from the developing concept stage onward. Um, So, yeah, I hope that this trend continues and that we continue to see uh, Indigenous um, stories portrayed accurately and authentically um, in front of and behind the camera. Let's go back to Kylik now. Kylik, your daughter Indigo, she's a big part of the film. How's she doing? Oh, she's doing great. Um, and she got some mud in her eyes playing at the, at the river. So we had to take her into the doctors <laughs> yesterday, but she's doing great. <laughs> uh Okay. And are you folks still living in the cabin you built? Yeah, we're there quite a bit. Um, unfortunately, the, we had a really big flood this year and it kind of 
wreck some of our infrastructure. So um, I've had to stay in town a little bit while my crew is staying out there. I have people doing construction and tours and stuff. So unfortunately, I'm kind of half time in town right now. And Kyle, like I'm interested in, in your long term vision here. I mean, do you have any plans now of ever moving away from the Arctic or closer to the grid? Um, and then, of course, you know, you have a daughter and as she gets older, are you folks going to stay out there living the subsistence lifestyle? I always joke with my daughter that any boys that are willing to paddle a canoe 16 kilometers are the only ones that are, you know, allowed to date her. So I'll probably just end up moving farther from town um, as she gets older. Um, no, my, my plan is to stay out there the vast majority of the year. Um, it, it, I, I, I'm, I'm a, I really try to live as much as I can within my, my own philosophy and with it, within what I think is more productive for the environment. So the cost of living here in the North when it's minus 40 and 24 hour darkness, just the, the cost of keeping your building heated and everything like that, it, it's actually cheaper for me to just go down South on holidays um, if I can shut my house down. So I do plan to be away for a few months a year during the harshest parts of it, just to get a break and um, hopefully, um, you know, tackle some other projects that we're working on. But for the most part, I don't see any reason to not live out on the land. Uh, every month we get a little bit more organized and it gets more comfortable. This winter we'll be able to, you know, we'll be able to shower out there, wash our clothes out there. Um, we won't have a huge need to really come to town very often at all for anything. So yeah, and, and it's just, it's how I like to live. I, when I'm done work at the end of the day at the village, I'm canoeing, walking dogs. I'm, I'm enjoying my life. When I'm in town, I tend to just turn on the TV <laughs> after work. So, yeah, I'm hoping to stay out there. It definitely. Well, we're wishing you the best of success for you and your family and, and lots of health and happiness to come. And I'm thinking being young and fit like you is probably a big advantage too. I think I'd I'd have a tough time of it up there trying to do some of that stuff that you folks do and securing all those resources and everything. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for our discussion today. So big thank you to our guests, Tiffany Ayalek and Kylet Kassoon-Taylor for sharing these unique stories of housing security in the new documentary, Ukbik, Little Village in the Arctic. Join us on Native America Calling again tomorrow for a discussion about a new museum exhibit called Grounded in Clay, the Spirit of Pueblo Pottery. Until then, I'm Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening. My name is Asad. When I was 19, my mom was diagnosed with colorectal cancer because she smoked. My tip is find things to be thankful for. I'm thankful she quit smoking. I'm thankful for the nurses who taught me how to check her IV and to manage her medication. And I'm thankful for every day we have together because nothing is guaranteed, especially for us. The people you love are worth quitting for. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. CMS program. Local Indian health care provider, Kaisakangwasi Turumnyasi Healthcare.ga, Nakakilanu, 1 800 318 2596. 
Unakadluni Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service Kunin. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.